Well, this morning, we, um, as we continue our study of the Holy Spirit's work in Jesus' life, we're at uh, one of the holiest places in all of the gospel where Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's being uh, tempted there by his flesh and by Satan. This is the opportune time that Satan has looked to uh, infiltrate Jesus' life and ministry. If he can get him to acquiesce to his own flesh in the garden, then there will be no cross, and there'll be no salvation, we'll be lost forever. And so without any further uh, chit-chat about this text, let's just read it. It's in every one of the Gospels, but we're reading from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 26. That right after the Passover feast, then Jesus went with them, his disciples, to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, James and John, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Spirit is in, in, indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for a second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for a third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand. The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Years ago, a man who is a master craftsman, also a great musician who had a, an ability to craft instruments of great renown, he decided to begin making violins. And everywhere he went, he, he thought about making them. He pondered how to use his technique to the greatest advantage. Every month he'd get a shipment of wood and he'd go through all of the pieces of wood and he'd select just the right piece and he'd begin to carve. But finally, after a number of months of carving instruments, he determined that none of the wood was quite right. All of the instruments that he made were beautiful. But the resonance, the, the sound, wasn't as deep and rich as he imagined. So he hired a scout. And he said, I want you to go in search of the perfect wood. And I want to, as soon as you find it, I want you to, to cut it and I want you to ship it to me. And so after several months, he received a shipment. With it was a note from the scout that said, I think this is what you're looking for. He took the, took the wood out of the box and it was only one piece and he began to carve. But after about 30 minutes, he discovered that this wood was different than the others because he broke his knife. And over the next few weeks, he 
broke 12 different carving instruments because the wood's grain was so coarse and the wood itself was so hard. But when he finished the instrument and he put the bow to it, he began to weep because the sound of it was like more than he imagined. It was rich and it was deep and the resonance was astounding. And so he contacted his scout and he said, where did you get the wood? The scout said, I got it at the timber line. In fact, there are very few trees there. The wind is so fierce that on the windward side of the tree, bark can't even grow. He said, these trees, if they grow at all, look as though they're bent over. It's as if they're kneeling because of the cold and the fierceness of the wind. You know, 17 times in the gospel, Jesus is said to be praying. But only once is he said to be on his knees. And that's here in Gethsemane. He prays on his knees. Now, to pray on your knees in the Bible means that you are in abject, ardent petition. You're not playing around. This isn't Jesus, now I lay me down to sleep. This is work. And Jesus is on his knees. Luke tells us that he withdraws from his disciples about a stone's throw and gets on his knees. But Matthew says he falls on his face. Victor Hugo once said, Adversity makes a man. Prosperity makes monsters. Well, if that's true in all of human history, there has never been greater adversity than these hours in the Garden of Gethsemane. For in this garden, Jesus is experiencing the fierce winds of his Father's judgment. Two weeks ago, someone asked me, do you think it's possible for Jesus to have sinned? Now, in theological parlance, that's called the impeccability argument. And a lot's been written on it. But let me ask you this. If Jesus couldn't have sinned, what do you make of Hebrews 4? If Jesus couldn't have sinned, what do you make of his active and passive obedience? If Jesus couldn't have sinned, what do you make of his experience in the Garden of Gethsemane? You see, in these final hours in this garden, Jesus answers all of those questions with the clearest confirmation of obedience to the Holy Spirit that he ever demonstrates in his entire life. This is the holiest of holy ground. Without this, there'd be no cross. So on this Confirmation Sunday... Let's study this text. First of all, notice, if you will, the place. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. 
You know, one of the fascinating studies of Jesus in the Gospels is to look at all that happened at nighttime. The Bible says when Jesus was born of a virgin in Bethlehem, he was born at night. When Nicodemus, the great teacher of Israel, came to Jesus, he comes at night. When Jesus comes walking on the water to his disciples who are in a boat on the Sea of Galilee, he comes at night. And here, Jesus, when he kneels in prayer, does it at night. Matthew says they sing a hymn and they go out into the night. Somebody has said that in, in darkness our senses are heightened. I remember years ago, being about the age of the confirmation students, I have two cousins in Florida, and they said, we want to take you out to the bunkers. I said, really? Okay, let's go. And we went out to the bunkers. There's concrete bunkers right out there on the water's edge, World War II bunkers. And they, we went all the way down into this uh, circuitous route into these uh, bunkers. And once we got into the deepest, darkest area, they turned their flashlights out and ran away from me. And I want you to know all my senses were heightened. <laughs> You know, you think about it. In the daytime, you'll hear something, you'll ignore it. At nighttime, at nighttime, you focus on that sound. What is it? It sounds like a cell phone. <laughs> when there's pain, when you're in pain, isn't it true it's always tougher at night? When you're sad or you're worried or you're grieving or you're in a panic, isn't it tougher at night? Doesn't it seem as though those minutes seem like hours at night? And Matthew says, after they eat the meal and they sing the hymn, Jesus takes them out into the night. Now, according to the Talmud, that is the, the tradition of the Jews written down, it required that anyone who celebrated the Passover in Jerusalem had to stay there all night within a certain vicinity of the city. Now, fortunately, the Mount of Olives is in that vicinity. And so Jesus takes them out on the side of the Mount of Olives. Matthew says they sing a hymn before they go out. You know what they sang? It's called the Hillel. And the Hillel had two parts. At the beginning of the meal, they sang the first part that dealt with the deliverance from Egypt. But at the end of the meal, they sang about the Messiah who was to come to redeem them. Now think of that. They sing that second part about the redemption of the Messiah, and Jesus takes them out into the night to Gethsemane. Now in Jerusalem there, in Jesus' day, there was no garden. It was a limited land area, and it was used for building and roads. So every garden was outside of the city. And it was very choice land, and it was owned by wealthy people. And here Matthew and all of the other gospel writers say that Jesus takes his disciples to Gethsemane. He takes them to privately owned land, to very expensive land, owned by another. Now think of that. Think of what Jesus borrows in the space of 24 hours. He borrows a donkey's colt, he borrows an upper room, and now he's borrowing a garden. And it's interesting where it's located. 
It's outside of Jerusalem, but you have to go down a valley called the Kidron Valley. John tells us this. And in the bottom of that valley is a stream. Now, that stream normally ran just with water, but at Passover time, when they were said to, in Jesus' day, sacrifice more than 200,000 animals, the blood of those animals would run down the hill into that Kidron Valley. And that was the same valley that David traversed when he was betrayed by his closest friend. In Leviticus chapter 4, it says that whenever a sacrificed animal is sacrificed in, in the tabernacle or in the temple, its carcass needed to be taken outside of the city. The writer of Hebrews says when Jesus suffered, he suffered outside the gate so that he could sanctify his people through his own blood. Now, most people think of that text as dealing with the west side of town where the cross was located, but absolutely it is true. Without the east side, there wouldn't have been a west side. Gethsemane's on the east, and I think it's interesting. That's exactly the same direction in which Jesus' Father, God Almighty, drove Adam and Eve out of the garden. Before he goes west, Jesus goes east. And in the Bible, east is always a tough place. And then second, notice the pain. Then he said to his disciples, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. Now over the years, there have been secular psychologists that have looked at this text and they said it proves that Jesus is mentally unstable. I mean, look what he does. He's in anguish, he's in grief, and he leaves his friends. He separates himself. He falls on the ground, and he resorts to childlike behavior. But they miss the anguish. Have you ever known somebody to be so much in anguish that they pass out? I've seen it twice in hospitals where someone was so much in anguish at what the doctor said they passed out. I've seen it once at a murder scene. And when I was about the age of the confirmands, I remember walking in a street in Florida and seeing a woman crying outside, well, right on the sidewalk in front of a house that had burned down. And with all the temerity I could muster, I said, hey, lady, what's wrong? <laughs> and she said, last night my kids died in that house. And then as she said it, she fell down. Anguish can do that. If you look for it, you can see that kind of anguish a lot of places. But I want to tell you something. There's no diagnosis, there's no bullet, there's no fire that's ever been burned that produces greater anguish than what Jesus experiences in this garden. He is facing the full terror of the full wrath of his Father. I love what Peter says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he is patient toward you, not wishing any should perish. Now, Peter there is talking about how God the Father is damming up his wrath. He says, one day, 
God will break the dam and he'll pour forth all of his wrath on unprotected sinners. But for those of us who are in Christ, we'll be completely immune from that dam break. Because what we deserve has already broken on Jesus. See, it's not the nails that he fears. It's not the whips or the the crown of thorns that he fears. What he's in anguish about is the fact that he knows within hours all of the wrath of his Father's holiness, all of his judgment, will be poured out on him. And here in the Garden of Gethsemane, the one who says that when you want to come before God, come as a child, he lives that out in the midst of his fiercest temptation. In the midst of a fierce temptation that no one has known, where reason has no answer, where experience is insufficient, where feelings are out of control, Jesus falls back on his inherent relationship with God and he cries out, My Father. Then third, notice the prayer. Going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Now, Matthew isn't like Luke. He doesn't tell us about the, the sweat that's like drops of blood. He doesn't tell us about an angel who comes and strengthens Jesus. He simply tells us that Jesus prays three times. Three times in anguish, he leaves his disciples, and three times he comes back and he's calm. You say, how is that possible? How is it possible to be in abject anguish, and after you come back from prayer, being totally calm? The way it's possible is that your prayer moves. It's not a static prayer. And Jesus' prayer is not static. I want you to notice it goes from his head to his heart to his will. Look how he begins. My Father. He begins with what he knows, his relationship with his Father. In the midst of all of his anguish, he knows to whom he belongs. He knows that the same one who declared, this is my Son in the waters of Jordan, is the same one who's with him in the deep waters of Gethsemane. My Father. That's where his head starts. Then it goes to his heart. If it be possible, remove this cup from me. Here he's praying with all of his emotion. If it's possible, let the cup pass. But notice what he doesn't pray. He doesn't say, please remove it. He doesn't say, I can't do this. He says, if it's possible, would you remove it? And that request is rooted in a deep acquiescence. He knows that his father is in charge of his life. So he says, if it's possible. He doesn't compromise his father's integrity. And then finally, after going from the head to the heart, it goes to his will. And he says, if it's not possible, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. You see, his will is strengthened. Get this. His will is strengthened by submitting his will to the will of his Father. 
And then fourth, notice the pronouncement. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Now think about this. These are the same three guys that slept on the Mount of Transfiguration. Luke says they sleep because they're sorrowful, but there's no sorrow on the Mount of Transfiguration. They just sleep. Someone says these three are world-class sleepers. They fail him on every peak. (laughs) And that's true. Every time Jesus takes them aside, they fall asleep. They fail him three times here. You say, I thought it was Peter that failed him three times. Yeah, he'll fail him three times later. These three fail him three times. And there's a message there for us. When it comes to our redemption, it's a one-man job. When it comes to our redemption... It is a one-man job, and his name is Jesus. They aren't even awake. He's all alone with his Father and his flesh and with Satan. By the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus not only picks his place of betrayal, He not only picks his betrayer, he picks the hour. He's not a victim. He's a volunteer. And then fifth and finally, notice the procession. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. 1993, Clint Eastwood made a movie called In the Line of Fire. I don't know if you've seen it. John, it was a good one, wasn't it? (laughs) It's about a Secret Service agent who froze on November 22, 1963 in Dallas. He saw the shooter. He saw the target line. And when he saw it, he froze, and Kennedy died. And 30 years later, in Washington, D.C., Frank Horrigan gets a second chance. And he throws himself in the path of an assassin's bullet. And as a result, he saves the President of the United States. Now let me ask you something. Why would Secret Service people do that? Because of what they get paid? I don't think so. They do it because they value the office of the President. They value the President in the history of this nation. Now think of this. In Gethsemane, it was a complete role reversal. The president of the universe, the king of the kingdom of God, takes the bullet for us who don't deserve it, who have no standing. The bullet of divine justice penetrated Jesus' heart, soul, mind, At the point of his greatest temptation, Jesus doesn't freeze. He doesn't follow his flesh. He doesn't say, I don't want to do this, and I'm not. 
He does exactly what the first Adam didn't. Think about it. The first Adam was put in a garden called Eden, which means delightful. Jesus is put in a garden called Gethsemane, which means oil press, where olives are crushed. Adam ate the, the fruit the, the woman gave him. Jesus drank the cup his father gave him. Adam's battle was in the daytime. Jesus battled at night. Adam hid himself. Jesus reveals himself. Adam tried to cover up his sin. Jesus was covered by our sin. Adam lived forever with the consequences of his own wickedness. Jesus died for the consequences of our wickedness. Of all the places in Scripture where we see spiritual battles happen, none is more heated than Gethsemane. Could Jesus have sinned? You bet he could have. In the history of the world, there have been only two people created without a sinful nature. One was Adam, and he fell. The second was Jesus, and he rose up. Adam sinned by following the directives of Satan. Jesus refused to sin by following the directives of the Holy Spirit. No wonder John Newton wrote Amazing Grace. How sweet the song. There's no sweeter, deeper, richer, fuller resonance than amazing grace. And you know where that grace was won? It was won on the battlefield of that garden. He wouldn't have gone west unless he did battle in the east. Aren't you glad he won? It's Confirmation Sunday. There's no greater confirmation of Jesus' glory than what He does that night. To Him be all the praise. Amen.